welcome back to an episode of Creating Madness. I'm your host, Ethan Carboni, along with special guest, Alexander Wolf. Alex, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Ethan. Yeah, thanks. Glad to, glad to be on with you because there's so much to talk about. Uh, it's the off season, but you never know it. Exactly. And before we get started with the episode, would you like to shout out your social? Yeah, um, probably the, the most relevant would be my Twitter feed, which is Alexander underscore Wolf with two Fs. That's W-O-L-F-F. All right. And our Twitter, as per usual, is at ATR Madness. We gave you a follow, Alex. We will make sure to tag this up later today. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. And with that, let's hop right into the episode. And seeing as we've talked before, former Sports Illustrated writer, now an author, what was your favorite thing to write about or talk about back when you were on the beat? Well, college basketball specifically, um, I just loved geeking out with, with coaches, with scouts, with people who are scouring the bushes for the next great player, you know, what they were thinking, seeing. Um, I love doing those kind of nitty gritty stories about what's under the hood in college basketball. I remember doing a piece on um, uh, the RPI <laughs> back when that was a huge determining factor in who would actually make the field. Uh, this very arcane uh, power ranking system the NCAA had that I was always convinced gave the bigger schools a huge advantage. Um, but also just, uh, you know, the mechanics of officiating, how officials get assigned, um, you know, just that kind of nitty gritty stuff. Uh, it's a it's a funny sport because the season only lasts about four months. And of course, the three weeks of the tournament seems like, you know, another three months in their own right. And but there's so much that's going on those other eight months of the year. And I just loved kind of you know, checking out the travel team scene and oh, what's going on with transfers and the coaching carousel, all that stuff that was just one step adjacent. Um, and you always found colorful characters, maybe not quite as colorful as in boxing, but um, there's something that attracts a Runyon-esque character about basketball and particularly college basketball, because let's face it, recruiting had a lot to do with that. It was a shady business. Um, maybe a little of it's coming out from the shadows now, uh, a little bit, but it doesn't going to mean that it'll be any less Runyon-esque. We'll get into transfers and IL and all that in a little bit, but... Just curious, I write for a website. How much pressure would you face writing for like a Sports Illustrated or like a CBS or like any of the top sports competitors, really, as opposed to just a small time website? How much pressure is it to make sure that your work is top? You know, I, probably the only real pressure I, I felt, I spent 36 years on staff at SI and most of them during an era when it was the print product that had primacy. Um, and I'd say the real pressure I felt was maybe twice a year in March. So or early April, that first uh, story we would do in the weekly magazine about the first couple rounds of the tournament, where you had to somehow find a theme and pull together all these things that happened at eight different sub-regional sites. And, you know, there were twos and threes that were going down the 14s and 15s. And you just had to do it quickly and do it smartly and have it hold up. Figuring that subscribers would get it on Thursday and Friday. And by then the regional semis would already be underway. 
guys. So it was crazy. Um, so that was a lot of pressure. And then, of course, the Final Four story, which was an insanely short deadline. But again, unlike finally to a site where you know people aren't expecting much more than what happened and maybe a few post-game quotes, you had to have a piece that not only stood up a week later, but kind of stood up for the history of that tournament. So 30 years later, people are going to the SI vault and they're reading about Duke's back-to-backs in 91-92 or you know, Chris Weber's timeout call that he didn't have in 93 or whatever. And I really felt the pressure to make the pieces that I did stand up. And um, fortunately, um, in those pressure situations, particularly at the Final Four, there were at least four or five other Sports Illustrated people credentialed who could work locker rooms. And sometimes Seth Davis was great. He would actually get in with, say, the Michigan State assistant coaches when they were doing film on a Sunday, you know, after they qualified for the Monday night final. They let Seth in knowing that only if they won would some of that color be used. So, um, you know, it was pressure, but it was the best kind of pressure where, you know, you had real incentives to do your best work and you knew you were being supported. Um, so it was a different era, let's be honest, because of the metabolism of it all with, with a weekly magazine as opposed to the instantaneity of a website. But um, that really energized me. And I just about every other story I did for the magazine, yeah, there were deadlines, but it wasn't anything as insane as that. And you turn it in and an editor might kick it back with suggestions and then you generate another draft and it was all, you know, it was all a kumbaya copacetic process, but um, you're kind of on your own on Monday night at the final four. So that all sounds, I just want to kick it back to something that you said, you said 36 years that you were on staff for SI, correct? That's right. Yeah. So you were working there during the prime of sports illustrated. I was, I mean, I got there in 80. So some people would say the seventies might've been the absolute golden age. The eighties were pretty great too, because ad sales were going through the roof. So that was the boom of the eighties. And we had so many editorial pages to play with as a result of all those ads being sold. So a typical issue, weekly issue that would drop in February or January would have three or four basketball stories in it. You know, there'd be an NBA piece, there'd be a college news piece. There might be a feature off the NBA or a feature off the colleges. And then, Roundup, uh, three or four page roundup of what was going on regionally in college basketball. And yeah, admittedly, there was no website to catch the spillover. But um, if you're a subscriber, all this stuff is coming into your home with fast, close color photography. And yeah, those deadlines were sometimes three, four day turnarounds, but that's kind of luxurious <laughs> compared to the standard of the web today. So um, you're right, it was, it was the golden age and it persisted into the 90s, too. I mean, it didn't end with the 80s. And it was only really the end of the 2000s and by, say, early 20-teens that things, the writing was really on the wall. And uh, I wound things up with the Rio Olympics in 2016. But I felt really, really lucky. I mean, in terms of being given enough time to do stories properly, the resources, the, the money to go places you had to go. Uh, and then obviously having the the audience, we were really setting the agenda for what people were, were talking about. There were 17 million people who would see each copy of the magazine, you know, factor in coffee tables and 
family rooms and a family of four or five or six. So you really had a feeling that um, you were not only doing good work, but it was actually getting read and influencing the conversation. I love the best feelings. It really is. And I, I think one of the things that colleagues of mine from that era at SI, when we look at the brand today, just the frequency of the magazine is scaled back and um, the website does, does really good work. I mean, the daily covers are, are sometimes indeed agenda setting. Um, it's just not quite the same way, but it's not that SI dropped the ball as much as I think uh, the platform changed. You know, people are just going to different places to get their news or get their sports, consuming it differently. Um, you know, we talk a lot about attention spans, but there's definitely truth to that, I think. Um, and the, the long piece in the back of the weekly magazine, which we called the bonus piece, is no longer uh, no longer a thing to the same extent. Now, they've tried to replicate it on the web with a daily cover, but it isn't quite the same animal. It's not nearly as long and in-depth. And uh, I can assure you the resources that were committed back in the 70s and 80s to make sure those stories were had the had the the hell reported out of them, um, they're not being committed now because the the business model just doesn't permit it. Right, and to be fair, you get my generation who all they want is a two hundred word article because they don't have the attention span to read more than that. Yeah, I mean, I I do think that we underestimate the reader. To some extent, I think if a story is really well done and it's something people really don't know and don't know how interested they're going to be in it, uh, that you're doing the reader a disservice if you if you kind of have low expectations like that. But, um, you know, the story really has to be good. It has to be the, right. a great germ of an idea and then it has to be pulled off, really executed well. And we have, people talk about our writers from back in the day, but we had these amazing photographers too. And I know nowadays it's all about video, but still photographs. I mean, the cover of City Moncrief flying in for a dunk for Arkansas um, was, was iconic in the late seventies and, you know, so many others. And, you know, we had a photographic staff of 16, 17, 18, just amazing photographers who would go over the country every week and shooting just for us. And they would be hanging strobe lights and, basketball arenas around the country. And that gave those amazing pictures, that kind of freeze frame look, um, almost like frosting, you know, the way guy goes up for a shot or a dunk. And uh, all that stuff was characteristic of the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And gosh, I was lucky to be a part of it. And being a part of something so big, do you have like a favorite moment you were able to cover for SI? Oh, there were a lot. Um, a at lot. the Lillehammer Olympics 94, I was able to cover Dan Jansen finally winning a gold medal in speed skating after just Olympics after Olympics of disappointment and falls and personal tragedy. That was a great moment. Um, college basketball-wise, being courtside at the Spectrum when Leitner took Grant Hill's pass and threw in that shot to beat Kentucky in overtime in the East Regional Final in 92, um, not only to be there, but then six, seven months later, I wound up writing a huge bonus piece, kind of reconstructing that game, going back and talking to winners and losers and referees and sports writers and everybody. 
And, uh, you know, Rick Pitino still beats himself up for not having put a defender on the baseline to guard Grant Hill when he threw the pass. But he had his reasons. And it was, um, you know, the great privilege I had the time to recreate that game and talk to everybody. And everybody would talk to me. That was the other great thing. You know, the there's a generation now that won't open a door for Sports Illustrated because the brand doesn't mean what, say, ESPN means or Barstool means. Uh, but back in the day, you know, if, if Rick Pitino or Mike Krzyzewski wanted to say his piece about that game, and believe me, for the Kentucky people, revisiting the heartbreak of it was not something they wanted to do often, they would do it for us. And that's because we were kind of the last word. So I was a great beneficiary of that, too. Wow. So you were like the guy that people would go to working at Sports Illustrated or like Sports Illustrated in general, like they would go to you versus now it's take it to Twitter or take it to a reporter. Right. It wasn't so much they would come to me, but when I would go calling on them, um, there was a good likelihood that that uh, an interview would take place and they would understand what we needed. And they realized that, yeah, this is a way to get your story out. We would do it responsibly. We would land on 17, 17 million or before 17 million sets of eyes. We, we didn't have that many subscribers. We had uh, maybe two to three million subscribers, but each copy would get passed along so much that we could claim a readership that's that large. So people of influence, whether it's a sports information director on a college campus or an agent for a pro athlete, they could make the case to some of these, these athletes that, oh, this is time well spent. You know, it's going to come back to help you. And, um, you know, we, we actually started to take that for granted. And then I remember noticing by the 90s, uh, we were dealing more and more with athletes for whom it was ESPN and really nothing other than that. So then ESPN started up their own magazine. And uh, they would pose guys for covers, kind of the way Slam Magazine would pose guys for covers. And suddenly being on the cover of SI was maybe not secondary to them, but, you know, we were having to throw some elbows to get what we once got pretty much easily. Yeah, that makes sense, especially with if the sports industry was already starting to grow to that aspect, the sports industry probably has tripled since the 90s, if not more. Yeah, I mean, when you think about um, just all the iterations on the web, and I mean, to me, one of the most powerful things has been the the power of the athlete. You know, forget about the Players Tribune, which we shouldn't forget about. I mean, it's it's a great venue for athletes to to find their soapbox. But yeah, their social feeds, particularly Twitter, given how instantaneous it is. Um, you know, in some ways, the smart athletes realize they don't need us anymore. They, they can cut us out of the equation and get their message out unmediated to, to fans. So, um, you know, and sometimes to their <laughs> rival athletes, you know, the smack talk back and forth. Um, so just finding, finding a way to kind of adjust to that new world. I watched some of my slightly younger colleagues, um, you know, somebody like Grant Wall, say, who covers soccer. It's fascinating to see how he's, retained a lot of his kind of traditional journalistic strengths. He writes these lovely long features for his Substack, but he's doing it for his Substack. 
You know, it's he has to kind of hustle a little more. He's more of a personal brand. And at the same time, he has to do the grubby work of being a presence on Twitter and dealing with the trolls and, and all that stuff. And he folds podcasts in and, you know, so documentary work, all sorts of things. He always has a book idea percolating. It's just more of a hustle. Um, and I got to say that metabolically and just my temperament and what I loved about storytelling was so much more suited to the weekly magazine uh, cadence. And uh, I honestly don't know if I hadn't left the staff after the Rio Olympics in 2016. I don't know how I'd be faring in this brave new world. And seeing as we're writing in magazines, you weren't doing the online writing, you weren't doing what is currently called a journalistic job at this point. I'm not sure how to describe it, but in a magazine, as opposed to being an online journalist, how is it switching from writing articles for a magazine to becoming an author who wrote a few books? To say well, I should, yeah, I should, I should definitely um, just slightly tweak your characterization. I did end up doing a fair amount of online stuff starting, oh, early to mid 2000s, we, it was made clear to all of us on staff that, that we needed to do that. And I did a handful of stories that lent themselves a whole lot more to online. Um, SI had a long form site at SI.com. And I did a huge story about three on three as FIBA was ramping it up to become an Olympic sport. And that was a great example of a subject that lent itself to the web. Um, and it was beautifully designed and had all sorts of bells and whistles and pop-ups and videos and sound and everything. Um, so I got a, I got definitely got a taste of that, but you're right. Generally I'm the long form magazine guy who is now turned more to books. And um, you know, that's just being able to set my own schedule and um, hammer out a deadline that's leisurely enough in the future uh, it just suits me more and the kind of work I like to do and the way I like to get kind of lost and go down rabbit holes when I do my research. Um, I was just about able to do that at SI even with a weekly magazine deadlines. Um, but working on books, I, I have even more leisure, which is actually a really good fit for me. And I totally understand that there are all sorts of people in the business who love that quick turnaround, instantaneous, instant feedback too. You know, you post something, you tweet something, whatever it is, you're getting your blowback or your affirmation, whatever it might be, you're getting it in real time practically. So that's, that's part of the appeal. I'm sure to many people, me, I kind of like that taking that a little bit extra time and just hope that um, people aren't doing the TLDR thing, you know, when, when you post a 5,000 word piece or something and, and uh, with books, there's, there's no misunderstanding. Everybody knows that it's, you know, a lot of time went into it and it's going to demand a fair amount of time on the part of the reader too. Not going to lie. I have been reading a lot more than I usually would. And I'm honestly, I'm probably ordering a, one of your books after this. So I'm excited. Which, which one? I was thinking big game. If you can hold on, um, maybe just a few more months in October, there's going to be a new edition coming out. 
the 20th anniversary is coming up and Duke University Press is reissuing it with, I did a new preface and I did little codas to the end of all 27 chapters, updating the reader on what had happened in 20 years. So, um, you know, I don't want to discourage you, but you can only find used copies right now. And if, if you wait until October, it'll be uh, all gussied up for its 20th anniversary. All right. Sounds good. And to all the listeners, make sure you guys go check that out in October. Reminder. And with that, we're going to move into our final topic or two. And I think we got to start off with the NI here. As we talked about before the episode yesterday, thankfully, the NCAA did something and did not screw it up. (laughs) So far, right? So far, but we're 12-ish hours in. And no screw up, that must be a record for them. <laughs> so with that being said, the NIL, NCAA has announced that boosters and cannot give money. Boosters cannot recruit. Only the coaching staff recruit players and transfers. And they will be and going back to the past 10 months, any instances of recruiting by people other than the coaching staff will be looked into if they deem it severe enough. Whatever that means and their level of severe or not, we can see event. <laughs> but what are your views on the NIL as a whole over the past 10 months? Is you got to watch college basketball in its prime with being players being paid under the table and everyone knew it was under the table, but they couldn't do about it versus now. Yeah, uh, I have a lot of thoughts. So Armin Katan and I did a book called Raw Recruits that detailed exactly how that money was being delivered under the table and all the games that were played and how the shoe companies were involved, all of it. And coming out the other side of that project, I felt, and I think Armin did too, that the hypocrisy, the inability to kind of adapt to what a, what's a real market and letting market forces um, take over. And the fact that the NCA clearly wasn't serious about full and fair enforcement because they didn't have a staff that could keep up with the, the scale of what was going on. In light of all that, I do think the, the elimination of, of the hypocrisy is a step forward. But boy, did we get the Wild West here um, up until yesterday. I mean, if yesterday really does indicate a departure into a new direction, I mean, this Isaiah Wong thing at Miami to me is like, just, <laughs> no, none of us could have, the biggest doomsayers couldn't have predicted what, what, you know, he's basically Adrian Dantley back in the early 80s when he refused to report, even though he was signed to a contract with the Utah Jazz, he was refusing to report unless his deal got renegotiated. Um, you know, I think that's, that's the extreme example, but um either because the NCA just failed in its messaging, whether the boosters were just completely ready to pounce, which I think was a lot of it, especially in some of these huge SEC type programs, which let's face it, that's where all the cheating was going on. Or most of the cheating was going on previously. Um, you know, that the boosters had were locked and loaded and it was like free fire time. So, um, we got a little window into to what a totally unregulated environment would be. And I think um, it's not just that competitive equity would be threatened. I think 
coaching staffs were just pulling their hair out because when you combine that with a transfer portal, just roster management becomes a full-time job. I mean, you have no idea who's going to, who's going to be on your roster come October 15th. And um, so I'm glad they stepped in. I, I'm skeptical that more regulation is going to lead to, to a better outcome because the NCAA's track record on that has always been, you know, the fatter the rule book, the, the more um, chaos is taking place. So I, I'm, the jury's very much still out on it. But, um, yeah, I mean, those of us who, who predicted a Wild West environment, I think, were vindicated and certainly not to the, to the benefit of the sport just because of the chaos. And like you wrote a book about it. We're seeing this now in the transfer portal more than recruiting, where everyone see like obviously there was not the one time free transfer until a couple of years ago. But schools weren't offering you know, we'll just say North Dakota well, North Dakota because that's a random mid major. If North Dakota has a kid that is a sophomore and has a leap year, twenty eight points per game, nine rebounds, eight Odds are he's going to the NBA instead of transferring like at nine out of 10 times. Now we're seeing these players transfer and get offered hundreds of thousands of dollars to transfer. As we saw Jordan Addison at Pitt for football being offered lucrative six deals to transfer to SEC schools. How do you, if this is what we're seeing in the transfer portal, how much we're going to be seeing some stuff about recruiting come out, if at all. Yeah. Yeah. You mean kids right out of high school? Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think it, it's all the market. The market doesn't care whether it's a transfer or a high school senior, if the kid can play and help a program and it's a program like Pitt or Tennessee or whatever it might be that has uh, boosters with a lot, a lot of green, um, the market going to win out, you know, that's, that's just econ 101. Um, the one thing that I, I'd say my biggest fear, because for me, it's all about the tournament and the tournament's all about um, the, the high seeds getting a shot at the big boys who will never play the, the little guys, the mid majors on a neutral floor, much less on the mid majors home floor. Um, so I, I think in, in light of that, I, I'd really like to see um, co- competitive equity is, I think, is going to get salvaged simply by having, I think of a guy like Devontae Jones at Michigan. Um, he plays at Coastal Carolina. He has a really, really good career there uh, for two or three seasons. He's conference player of the year. So it's almost like he's auditioning to go to the Big Ten. Michigan picks him up. He actually has a pretty good year. By the end of the year, they, you know, they do well enough to make the tournament. He has a few injuries and all, but it it, it seemed like a pretty good deal for both sides. Devontae got to showcase his skills on the big stage, and Michigan got to replace uh, their hole at point guard with somebody who is proven. And I guess the the thing for Coastal Carolina is they can then go out into the recruiting market and say, see what Devante did. Our program became a kind of proving ground. You see even Ivy league kids. Um, and, and this was, 
accelerated a little bit by COVID, but and the Ivy shutting down because of COVID. But you see some of them doing well and then moving on uh, as grad transfers to legit big time schools and then going on to the NBA. So when you're out there recruiting your freshmen, say you're a mid-major, you can say, you know, you don't like the, the offers that you got coming out of high school. Well, we believe in you. We're going to help you develop. You're going to get more playing time with us. And then you might have a chance later on, I think, to move to a, a bigger school and on a bigger stage. And coaches at the mid-majors are just going to have to be comfortable with suddenly they're only going to have guys or some of their best guys anyway for two or three years before they might move on. Whereas that used to be the burden that was borne by you know the, the big big time schools that guys would go to the NBA directly after one or two years. So maybe all that will sugar out to everyone's benefit. Um, but there is a lot of chaos to be worked through in the system right now to see where it's all going to land. And again, my sympathies go to many people in this whole equation, but particularly to the coaches who want some fix on what their October 15th roster is going to be. And I think right now, a lot of them are scratching their heads. And with that being said, Alex, thank you so much for joining the show. You want to shout out your socials one last time? Yeah. Thanks for having me, Ethan. It's um, at Alexander underscore Wolf W O L F F on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I always, enjoy interacting with people over over social so um yeah thanks for giving me a chance to talk about some of this stuff there's always an interesting turn of events in college basketball even though here we are rolling through the month of may indeed and as always our social is at atr madness alex thank you for joining us we'll see you later thanks so much ethan take care